1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9 through 21. For I think that God has set forth us the apostles last, as it were appointed to death, for we are made a spectacle unto the world, unto angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but ye are wise in Christ. We are weak, but ye are strong. Ye are honorable, but we are despised. Even of this present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and are naked and buffeted, and have no certain dwelling place. And labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world, and are the offscouring of all things unto this day. I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. For though you have ten thousand instructors in Christ, you have not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Wherefore I beseech you, be ye followers of me. For this cause have I sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some are puffed up, as though I would not come to you. But I will come to you shortly, if the Lord will, and will know, not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What will ye? Shall I come unto you with a rod, or in love, or in the spirit of meekness? I've titled this, Living a Life of Ministry. Living a Life of Ministry. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity and privilege we have to open your precious word. And thank you for every word of God that is, we know that it is pure. And I pray that you help us to rightly divide thy truth tonight and make application to our day and time for our good and thy glory. Help us to realize, Father, that we are living in a world that is against us. They are not for us. And so, Lord, just help us to put on the armor of God that we might be found faithful until our Lord comes for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In our contemporary world, or our modern world, the life of a, quote, minister has become in some parts attractive, a business profession. Pastors have become CEOs of large corporations worth millions of dollars. Kenneth Copeland, I'm told, according to the Internet, is worth $750 million. Um, Pat, Pat Robertson is worth $100 million. Uh, Joel Osteen, $40 million. Uh, and, you know, it goes on down from there. But these are multi-millionaires. And they justify it, you know, because it's for ministry. The idea or possibility of having to live by faith, or that is maybe hand-to-mouth, is outdated, scorned, and even considered unbiblical in many places. And I understand we, we need to have balance in our world, but uh, <clears throat> the life of the ministry, according to the Bible, is quite different than what many portray it as today. And you know, we are, we have to remind ourselves sometimes, you know, in America, it has been easier. There are still many parts of the world where it's life and death, where it's you do without, where you are considered, as Paul describes here, as it was in the Roman world. Uh, they were outcasts. They were considered outcasts. They were considered 
a scourge to society. Uh, they were much very looked down upon by society, by the world at large. And, and of course, you know, it's not necessarily that way in our society, in our culture, yet, although it's becoming more and more that way. And the day is coming, in not too distant future. Uh, I'll just throw this out there, that one of the candidates for Democratic Party for president just said recently that, tax, that churches that do not approve same-sex marriages, sodomite marriages, should lose their tax exemption. Now, this isn't the first time this idea has been put forth. Mr. Obama put a similar thing forth that was going to try and pass something to require churches to hire sodomites although it was rejected by unanimous decision of the Supreme Court at that time. So, so even in our country, you know, biblical Christianity is becoming more and more hated. Hated. It, by the way, it's never really been accepted, biblical Christianity. I want you to notice, first of all, I have three things. First of all, our position in the world as ministers. You know, and as they think, you know, we often think of ministers, you know, we think of pastors and teachers, but the church is a ministry, and the church is made up of all you people. We're, this is our ministry. And so there's an application to all of us here, too. Uh, and but notice the, our position in the world, verse 9, For I think that God has set forth us the apostles last, as it were, appointed the death, we are made a spectacle unto the world, and to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but ye are wise. We are weak, but ye are strong. Ye are honorable, but we are despised. Even unto this present hour we both hunger and thirst, and are naked, and are buffeted, and have no certain dwelling place. And labor working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world, and are the offscouring of all things unto this day. Now, let me define some of these words here. The word, the idea of being set forth is to point away from oneself, to point out, to show forth, to exhibit. Uh, he says we are the last. That is, we are of the, considered the lowest rank. You know, pastors have become, you know, professional people. And really they are. You know, they, uh, but... But they have never been that, that, that has not been something that the world has promoted, but in our society it is being. Uh, you know, it's something that people look up to or, or seek uh, in many places. But, but Paul said here, we're of the lowest rank. We're appointed to death or we're doomed to death. And Paul, writing in 2 Corinthians, would talk about how they were sentenced, they had the sentence of death on themselves. You know, everywhere he went, he was under the threat of death. He was made a spectacle, a public show. The, the idea here is that he was to be gazed at or made sport of. Like, the idea of, is of the Roman theater where they put the criminals to the lions. And, and it was a show for the world to watch. Now we don't think of that in our world. But watch Hollywood and what do they say about the preachers. He's usually the biggest goofball on the show. He really is. Uh, many times. Uh, you know, I even think of Andy Griffin and the preachers that they, they show on Andy Griffin. I, I've watched Andy Griffin and I enjoy watching Andy Griffin. But, you know, you, you think about it, some of the things that the preachers do and say, and the, 
you know. Um, anyway, it's a spectacle. Uh, they, he said, we are fools. That's equivalent to without learning or required study, without forethought or wisdom. So, you know, you're just kind of stupid. You're not really smart. Uh, you know, if you were smart, you know, you would, you would, you would accept some of the scholarly stuff. Uh, you wouldn't hold to uh, a biblical origin of creation, all that, and, and, you know, textual criticism. You wouldn't deny that. But anyway, um, you know, uh, then the word weak, feeble, uh, unable to achieve anything great, lacked, and the idea here of lacking power to resist, in which they did. By the way, they weren't leading a resistance movement or a revolution. That, That was not their purpose. They were, you know, Bible, the Bible doesn't teach Christians to take up arms to further the gospel, like Islam does. And by the way, the Catholic Church does too. Uh, so they were not leading a resistance movement. They were despised, without honor, dishonored. They were defamed. They were evil spoken of, reviled, railed at. And he said, and we entreat. You know, again, the idea of a treaty appears weak. Because to entreat means to appease by beseeching, begging. Paul said in Romans 12:1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. He beseeched them, he begged them, he entreated them. They were then these other last two words here I have: filth and offscouring. Filth has the idea of the most despicable of men. And off-scouring, did you ever come home from the bird farm, Brother Dave, and you went like that? Okay, what you brush off, that's the off-scouring. And you do it before you go in the house. You don't want it in the house. He said, that's what we are to the world. Now, Does that sound like modern-day Christianity in our society? Are we accepted by the world, honored by the world, considered wise by the world? You know, he said, they were, they were you know, we are fools, but ye are wise. We are weak, but ye are strong. Ye are honorable, but we are despised. Now, and I read that, and I thought, how can that be? Well, they had become followers of men. When you become followers of men, you lose the power of God. You lose your distinctiveness. And what sets you apart as a witness for Christ, and so they had, be, they had, they had altered the gospel message, watered it down so that it was more palatable and acceptable to the world. And, you know, that's what the world wants of Christianity. See, the world thinks we are on scholarly, on, scholarly, on scholarly for rejecting textual criticism and its perversions of the Bible. Oh, you, you still use, I, I, I realize, it. you're just a little bit, uh, you know, on scholarly, you still hold the King James Version. You, know, you just you just need to do some research. Yeah, I have. 
I've done enough research to know that God says he'd keep his word. I believe what God says. Or what unbelieving scholars will tell me. Or, you know, rejecting the idea that, or, or holding to a biblical view of creation and the origin of species. Look what, look at Matthew. Now, as we think about this, and what our position is in the world, I want to look at a couple, couple passages of Scripture. Let's start in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. And verse 16... I'm going to read a lengthy passage here. Matthew 10, verse 16. Jesus is instructing his disciples and before he sent them out, and this is what he said to him, them. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils. They will scourge you in their synagogues. Ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents, and cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. But when they persecute you in this city, flee you into another. For verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master, and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? Fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, and hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in the light. What ye hear in the ear, that preach ye in the housetops. Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, ye have more value than many sparrows. Whoso therefore shall confess me before men, him will I also confess also before my father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Think not that I am come, come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. And so, and then, look, and then go to uh, Luke chapter 12, Luke chapter 12, and similar uh, parallel passage here, Luke twelve forty nine to 53, I am come to send fire on the earth, and what will I if it be already kindled? But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how am I straight until it be accomplished? Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth? I tell you nay, but rather division. For from henceforth there shall be one five and one household, house divided, three against two and two against three. The father shall divide against the son, and the son against the father, the mother against the daughter, the daughter against the mother, the mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And he said also to the people, When you see a cloud rise out of the west, straightway you, you say, there cometh a shower, and so 
it is. And then John chapter 15, John chapter 15, and verse 18. John 15, 18. Again, Jesus, just before he goes to the cross, his last message to his disciples is really encouraging. If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they had not had sin or not known their sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hateth me hateth my father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. But this cometh to pass, that the word might be fulfilled that is written in the law, they hated me without a cause. You know, the Bible very clearly tells us here, in these three passages, that the world, Jesus is telling the world is going to hate us. If we're going to live... With a testimony for Christ, the world is not going to like us. In fact, Jesus is saying here in John chapter 15 that the Jews hate him more because he revealed to them their sin, that they, their way of righteousness was not going to cut it. It didn't measure up to God's standard of righteousness. Therefore, they hated him the more. Don't be surprised if you witness to somebody and you give them the truth of the gospel and they hate you more after that than it did before. Because you've just shown them that they're wrong. And the gospel is offensive. There's an offense to the gospel. I mean, think about it. You've just shown them that they're condemned. They're guilty and condemned before God. And they need to repent. They're living in wickedness. Do you think they're going to like you? Well, if they repent, they will. But if they don't, they're not going to like you. In 1 John 5, 19, John said, And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. And the idea is that the whole world is comfortable in living in the devil's lap, so to speak. It's like a child that's comfortable sitting on its parent's lap. It's comfortable there. The world is comfortable living in wickedness. And we make them uncomfortable. I remember Ask Webb saying one time that when he was in college, and there was this guy, he said he was just lazy. And, uh, you know, they were out working, they were working on something, it was on a work, work crew, uh, I think they were trying to remember what it was, I think they were cleaning up yards or lawn work or something, and, and he said all this guy wanted to do was sit, on the, sit in a shade tree and, and suck lemonade all day long. And he said, he said, I was out there working one day, and he was sitting over there drinking his tea or his lemonade, and uh, he said, he said I, I hate you. And I said, it's like, okay, what did I do to make him hate me? Because I embarrassed him. I made him look bad. 
So he hated me. You see, the, what the world hates are what they call narrow, bigoted, and hateful one way of salvation gospel. It is offensive to them. It was offensive to the religious crowd in Jesus' day. It's most offensive to religious people who think that somehow they can help attain the righteousness of God. But the world hates it. See, we're, we are considered narrow and bigoted. Though we do nothing to try and hurt them, we try to entreat them. And yet, see, this is our position in the world. Why don't you notice the second thing, our purpose in the world. <clears throat> Verses 14 and 15 He says this, I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons I warn you. For though you have ten thousand instructors in Christ, yet have you not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Now, this is a little tricky, I thought. But anyway, he talks about instructors and he talks about fathers. And I think he clearly declares here our purpose in the world. We are not to just be, you know, the word instructors means a tutor. And I think the idea here is they were, these instructors were self-proclaimed imparters of light. That was was the the, the definition of of the Greek lexicon. They were imparters of light. In other words, they were imparters of knowledge or imparters of information. Do you know what? It takes more than just information to save your soul. It takes the power of God. You see, our world is full of preachers who are nothing more than imparters of information. They call themselves teachers. Motivational ideas to make your life better. And Paul will write later in chapter 8, verse 1, and he will tell them that knowledge puffeth up. In fact, the words puffed up are used six times in 1 Corinthians, and it means to be swelled up with pride. And these teachers or these instructors are puffed up with pride in their knowledge. And how impressive their speeches are and how attractive, attracted people are to them. Like Brother Hoyle mentioned this morning, and this is a quote. Quote, do good because God wants you to be happy. When you come to church, when you worship Him, you're not doing it for God, really. You're doing it for yourself because that's what makes God happy. Unquote. That's Victoria Holstein. Larry Hutch, who, who has come up with this end-time teaching of our Jewish roots and our need to stand for Israel, he said this and, this, and so he has this video clip of him promoting this 
uh, Jewish roots idea. I never heard of this Jewish roots idea, so it was interesting to listen to it. Uh, what a smooth salesman. Anyway, he said there's three reasons why you need to, to, to let him teach you about our Jewish roots. Number one, God promised to bless those that bless Israel. So it will release a blessing of God in your life to learn about our Jewish roots. Secondly, it's the truth that you know, the truth that you embraced, that you own, that will set you free. And so to teach you a teaching of our Jewish Jesus, a Jewish Paul, and a Jewish Mo- Moses is releasing an end-time blessing that you will receive in your life that the prophets talked about. Now I'm scratching my head. You know, I've read the Bible through more than 50 times, and I'm thinking, hmm, where did the prophets say that? And then thirdly, Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, talked about how someday there would be teachings of the word of God that would tear down the wall between Jews and Gentiles, and Jews and Gentiles will stand together as one new man, and the Messiah will return to Jerusalem. So you need to allow me to teach you about the Jewish roots, then you could be part of that standing army of one new man and receive the blessing of God and prepare the world for the coming of the Messiah. And again, I'm scratching my head. You know, that's sort of like putting, you know, the Bible says Judas went out and hanged himself, and another place says, go, go thou and do likewise. You know, this is information, but the sad part of it, it's false information. It's a lie. It's a twisting of the scriptures. We're not told anywhere as Christians to support Israel. We're not. We're told to pray for them. We're not told to support them. In fact, you know how Jesus describes Israel at Jerusalem? As Sodom and Gomorrah. Revelation chapter 11. You see, this is not new. By the way, this is not new. This, this idea is not new. It's just a remake of John Hagee's original uh, uh, The Defense of Israel thing that he had, that he sold books and made lots of money off of, and that's what this guy's doing. But it's motivational. I mean, it's a very motivational speech he gave. Of course, him and this Paula White said that Jesus is not the only begotten Son of God. He's the first fruits. They're promoting a, a video series of the seven curses of the cross, that Christ has redeemed us from the seven curses of the cross. One of those curses that he redeemed us from is the curse of poverty. We've been redeemed from the curse of poverty. We've been bought back from the curse of poverty, so we don't have to live in poverty. I guess Paul must have not got that memo. Because if you notice in what he says in verse 11, even under this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place. And I don't think Jesus got it either because he said to one man, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. You see, we're living in a time when we know how to get along without the offense of the gospel. 
Jesus could have removed the offense of the gospel, uh, the offense to the rich young ruler. Paul could have removed the offense of the Jews, but it would have changed and perverted the gospel. See, to do so is to say one can be justified by the law. Go to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. This is what Paul confronts in the book of Galatians and confronted Peter about was the idea that one can be justified by the law. And see, when a person is unwilling to repent and, and wants to believe on Christ, what they're, what they're really saying is, I am not as guilty as the law says. Therefore, I am justified, partly by my good works, by keeping the law. And in Galatians 2, verse 14, he says, But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the man of the Gentiles, and not as the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified." But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. And so what he, what he is saying here is, look, if, if, you know, and this is what the Judaizers were doing. You know, they said, yeah, yeah, you have to believe in Christ, but you have to continue to keep the law. And this was the contention between the church at Jerusalem and the church at Antioch in Acts chapter 15. And Paul says, if we are any part justified by the law, Christ is no veil. We've perverted the gospel. The law is not meant to save. The law cannot save, not even part of it. Because all the law does is condemn us. And declare us guilty before God. See, the rich young ruler and the Jews were trying to justify themselves by keeping the law. The, the rich young ruler, remember, said, All these have I kept my youth up. What lack I yet? Jesus said, Sell all that you have. Come follow me. And he went away sorrowful. Why? Because he was covetous. He loved his money more than he loved God. And by the way, that's just not thou shalt not covet. That's also having a God before me. Because his money was before God. It was more important to him than God. So he hadn't just broken thou shalt not covet. He had broken thou shalt have no other gods before me. By the way, there's not a person on earth that hasn't broken every one of the commandments. As I study him and think about him and read him, read it, I'm more and more convinced of that. And see, repentance is really coming to understanding of the guilt as the law declares. And when a person isn't willing to admit that they're guilty before God as the law declares, they're not ready to repent. 
And if we give them a gospel that is without that declaration or that understanding, you may end up with a false profession. You might say, well, preacher, you know, one of the commandments is, thou shalt not kill, and I've never killed anyone. Well, look at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 21 and 22. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of judgment. But I say unto you, Whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whosoever say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. Whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hell fire. And 1 John 3 verse 15 makes it a little plainer than what Matthew does here. 1 John 3 and verse 15 says this, Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in you. Is there anybody that you ever hated? Either has been. I have. You know what that means? In the sight of God, a murderer. In the, in the eyes of the law, and compared to the law, I'm a murderer. You know, thou shalt have no other gods before me. I, I remember very clearly in Maine one time, me and another fellow from the church were out in visitation. There was a man he wanted to go visit. So we went to his house. And he said that he was saved. And I'm trying to remember how the conversation went. But anyway, I end up at Exodus chapter 20 in the Ten Commandments. And I read the first one, thou shalt have no other gods before me. I said, so have you always put God first in your life? He said, yes. I mean, just like that, yes. I said, wait a minute. Now, you just told me you never went to church. No. I said, well, the Bible says in Hebrews 10.25, Thou shalt not forsake the assembly of ourselves together, as the manner of some is. And so much more is to see they approaching, so on. And his wife got livid. She about came out of her chair. She was so angry at me. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. I said, it's a command of God. If you're going to put God first in your life, you're going to obey his commands. And she, got, she, she just got madder. I said, how can you say you put God first in your life when you don't even do what he says? Has God always had preeminence in your life? I mean, is there going to be an honest person say yes? And James 2.10 says, if we offend in one point, we are guilty of all. In other words, the condemnation is the same. It only takes one sin to separate us from God. And you start talking to the average person out there in the world about how God views their sin and their need to repent. And they're going to be offended. Now, if you just tell them just to believe in Jesus and forget about repentance, they end up justifying themselves. You see, it denies the condemnation of the law. See, that's what instructors do. 
They give information. But see, our purpose is to be fathers. It's to be fathers. And Paul makes an interesting statement here in verse 14. I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. And then verse 15, for though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have you not many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. See, father, a father is one who imparts life. A father begets life. Read Genesis chapter 5. You know, Noah begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Or Adam begot Cain and Seth, and so, you know, and so on. So you get the picture. And fathers impart life. They just don't give information. And, and Paul, what Paul is saying is to, is to the, these believers at Corinth, you know, I wasn't just an instructor. I wasn't just giving you information. I was giving you things that would bring you to life. A life giving. I was imparting life to you. You see, we don't want to win people to us. We want to win people to the Lord. And we need to impart to people how they can have the life of God, not just information about God. And a lot of just giving information about God, along with a lot of false information. By the way, the devils have information about God. They believe and tremble. But no, we need to impart life, the truth, the whole counsel of God. That they must be willing to repent and believe on Christ. You know, repentance really is a willingness to turn away from sin to Christ, to turn away from it. You know, it's not the idea I clean up my life and then I come to Christ. No, it's I'm willing to turn away from my sin and come to Christ. Like the Thessalonians said, they turned from idols to God. That's really what repentance is. And so he says, you have many instructors, but what you need is fathers, ones that will teach you or bring you to, to a place of life in the Lord. And so that's our purpose, is to beget life. Through the gospel. I want you to notice then the third thing. Our power in the world. Verse 18 through 21 says this. <clears throat> now some are puffed up as though I would not come to you. But I will come to you shortly if the Lord will. And will not, will know not the speech of them which are puffed up. But the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word but in power. What will ye? Shall I come unto you with a rod or in love or in the spirit of meekness? Now so he's saying here that the... the uh, I will come to you not in, in, in word, not in the speech of them that are puffed up, but in the power. And what he's referring to here is the power of the gospel. You know, he's saying that our power is not in worldly wisdom or smooth, impressive, motivational speeches. Not just in giving you information. It is not possessions. It's not impressive buildings or campuses. As we hear about today. You know, people building empires. No. 
The word power speaks of an inherent power, a power residing in anything by virtue of its nature. And so it's referring to the power of the gospel. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 4, and then also verse 16, Paul refers to this specifically, this kind of power that we're talking about. Romans 1, 4, and declared to be the Son of God with power. In other words, not, it's, a, it's a, something to inherit by the nature of the gospel. Uh, the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name's sake. So it's through the power of God and the resurrection power of God that uh, we have uh, this life. And then in, chapter, in verse 16, verse 16 it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power, again, that, that, that a, a power residing in a thing by virtue of its nature, the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the, the gospel of Christ is the power of God. You know, there's a natural appeal. It's undeniable. When I was listening to Larry Hutch giving his Jewish root spill, there was a natural appeal. I mean, he's a, he's a motivational, very, very intense kind of guy, you know, motivational. And that's the way they are. They're professional at that. They make everything sound so good. And if you were biblically ignorant, you'd be swallowed up like that. And so there is a natural appeal to motivational spirit, uh, speeches. But it lacks the power to transform a life. Because it is without the power of God. You know, Bill Hybel started Willow Creek Church. That was really the first seeker-friendly church. And, you know, the idea was that when they get the people in, then they could disciple them and see their lives changed. And so they used whatever, you know, they, they, what the, the, the model is, you, you, you give the people what they want to get them to come to church and then once you get them in the church and join the church, then you teach them the truths of the word of God that will transform their lives. It sounds very, like, it sounds very, um, how do I say it, very appealing and very, humanly speaking, very, very reasonable. The only problem is they didn't want to hear it. They didn't want the transformation. They wanted to continue to have the entertainment and the motivational speeches. And they realized, you know what? It really ain't working. It really didn't work. Why? It's because it's without the power of God. You see, if our message is unbiblical, it will be void of God's power. God honors his words, not our method. 
It's not ours. Look at Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. In verse 6. He says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Which is not another. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant. We looked last week at chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, that we're to be ministers for Christ, stewards of the gospel. We're not here to minister for men. If we start ministering for men, we're going to change the message. And Paul said, if I am seeking to please men, I'm no longer a servant of Christ. You see, these that seek to please men with their motivational messages or preach a gospel without repentance, they're preaching a perverted gospel. A gospel that is more palatable to the world. But it's also a gospel without the power to transform a life. That's why these churches that would baptize 200 a year or more, or 5,000 some in one Sunday, their attendance may be 2,000. It's because they're given a perverted message. By the way, that's First Baptist Hammond, Indiana. They had what they called House Cost Sunday. That was years ago, in the 90s. I think it was in the 90s. Baptized 5,000 some in one Sunday, supposedly. I still have the article somewhere. But you know what? They don't even have that many people that attend regularly. Although they do have a 100, over 100,000 church membership. You say, seriously? Yeah, I got that in print. And I asked a guy that, sister, went there one time. I said, how can that be? He said, well, here's how it is. Every person that ever went to Howells Anderson College, every person that ever got baptized at First Baptist Church is a lifetime member of First Baptist Church. Uh, What a joke. See, what are we doing? We're perverting the gospel. See, the gospel, the life of the ministry is not attractive to the world. It's not something the world loves. If we're going to be faithful in giving out the gospel, there will be those that will hear, but the majority are not likely to receive it because the gospel does have an offense. You know, 
do you like somebody telling you you're wrong? But really, the gospel tells you you're wrong. That's what it does. You're guilty of a crime against God. An offense against God. And it requires humility to accept that and to act on it. But we need to lovingly tell people, as a father, tell people the truth that they might come to have life and life more abundant.